You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's story, With a retired Major General who has a long list of accomplishments, but one most noted in his story literally changed his life. We will get to that coming up here in just a few moments. But some of our usual announcements that we remind you of. Why? Because they're super, super important. Like following us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground Ground Podcast. And make sure that you guys are following us on YouTube as well. Subscribe to the YouTube channel so you can watch all of our podcasts as well. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com, click on that Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. And with the holidays coming up, folks, you know you're going to be doing some Amazon shopping. Make sure you go to hazardground.com first. Do the same thing from your smartphone, and it'll redirect you to your app so all your credit card information is saved. It's very, very efficient and easy, and it's a great way to help out veterans' charities because if you go to hazardground.com first, We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend on Amazon, and we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So super important. Make sure you go to hazardground.com first. Don't forget also to make sure you download the Killcliff TV app. Uh, and go to KillCliff.com for the best CBD clean energy drinks. There are a huge user of KillCliff. I use it for my pre-workout. I use it for post-workout. These are just amazing beverages uh, that absolutely will fuel your workouts and get you through the day. If you're getting that lag later on, you just hit it at KillCliff Recover or Ignite, and it's the, absolutely the best thing for you. So they're great partners with us, a veteran-owned company that benefits the Navy SEAL Foundation. Again, KillCliff.com. Killcliff TV app. You can also get all of our podcasts there as well. Finally, Apple reviews. Continue to hit them. Leave us a post. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show and help continue to grow this Hazard Ground community. All right, on to this week's guest. Again, a retired Army Major General who has spent over 35 years in the military until May of 2015. He has multiple deployments overseas, including the invasion of Iraq including, as well, serving multiple overseas tours. He also commanded the Corps of Engineers in the Northwest Division. He was the Commandant of the Army Engineer School. He was the Deputy Commanding General of Third Army. He was a Commandant of the Army War College, President of the National Defense University, and just an incredibly long, distinguished career. But it is his undiagnosed bipolar disorder that actually led him to change his entire life and continue now to be an individual independent mental health advocate for veterans and working with them on their mental health. Again, he is retired Major General Greg Martin joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Major General, sir, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks, Mark. Uh, really great to be with you. A hundred percent, sir. Again, I, I think we we mentioned before we started recording, I came across your story in Task and Purpose and was so just wrapped up in everything that you had gone through uh, and everything that you have been through and where you are right now and the battle that you've had to go through both on the on the battlefield and away from it. And I knew this was a story that our audience had to hear because we talk so much on the podcast about mental health and PTSD. And full disclosure, I'm going through it right now after after 15 years, finally starting to 
look inward and deal with some of my own uh, struggles that I'm dealing with mentally. Uh, it's taken me a long time to get here and, and events that have, have brought me to this moment. But um, once you're here, it's kind of unfamiliar, scary territory. But as you all know, um, but you know that there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel that, that starts to get wider and wider. So for all you've done and for the courage to tell your story openly uh, and, and give up everything you've had to give up along the way, it certainly is uh, amazing that you've done so. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to, you know, sharing as much of that story as I can today. Yeah, and we want to focus on that. Again, it's really hard to encapsulate 36 years of a military career uh, in any short amount of time. But, you know, we, we always like to start back at the beginning and, and how and why you got in the Army. Okay. Um, I was a walk-on to Army ROTC at the University of Maine back in 1974. Uh, I liked it. And so I then applied to West Point, got in, uh, did four years there, graduated, uh, was commissioned in the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, which is, as you know, is mostly combat engineers who fight alongside infantry armor. Um, fell in love with troops, uh, got to go to some of the HUA schools, Airborne, Ranger, etc., um, which I loved. It was very motivational. Uh, when I was a platoon leader, company commander, all those troop leadership jobs at the junior level, fell in love with the soldiers. It was shortly after the Vietnam War. And basically, that is what kept me in the Army, being a leader of soldiers, doing hard, important, dangerous things. Uh, continued to do well all the way up through Colonel. Um, and I actually had a, had a uh, mental condition. It's not a mental illness, but it's a, an actual diagnosable condition called hyperthymia. Nobody talks about it. It's relatively unknown in American psychiatry. But what it means is that from about high school on, I was in a perpetual state of mild mania, which means I had excess dopamine and endorphins. And so I was extraordinarily energetic, enthusiastic, driven for my entire life. And, and that's really an advantage. It helped me to be a high performer for all those decades. But it also put me at higher risk for true bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, mania, and all those other things that are not good. So I was a brigade commander, 2002 to 2004, 130th Engineer Brigade, 5th Corps, Germany, which was the main effort for the assault to Baghdad. Deployed, and I can talk in detail about my experience as a brigade commander as well during the conversation, because sure. uh, a lot of lessons learned. But went to war, was in combat, uh, high, high stress level, which, of course, everybody knows, but everybody's brain reacts differently to the stress of war. What my brain did is it triggered my it triggered bipolar. So I had a genetic predisposition to have bipolar disorder, and it, it was dormant up until the age of 47 when I was in Iraq. So the stress triggered it. it and then in doing so, it distorted and damaged my brain circuitry, and my brain started pumping out excess pumping out and distributing excess dopamine endorphins. So I went into a state of mania, which is well above hyperthymia. So I was, but fortunately I was in a high performing state of mania. So I was, I felt like Superman. I felt fearless. I didn't need any sleep. I felt like I could accomplish anything on the battlefield. Um, so most of that year in Iraq, I was manic. And when we went back to Germany without the, you know, the up, the stress, the adrenaline of war, 
I fell into a pretty serious depression, which lasted almost a year. So I had no idea that I had bipolar disorder. Nobody did. It was unknown, undiagnosed. But with that depression in Germany, I completed my first full up-down manic depressive cycle. Over the next decade, I got promoted twice, went to bigger, more prestigious jobs, and my mania started swinging higher, my depression lower, until in 2014, a full decade after Iraq, I basically erupted into full-blown mania and became a maniac. Uh, you know, So I was over the top in pretty much everything, the way I thought, spoke, and acted. And I became so dysfunctional as a leader, my boss, who was a four-star chairman of the Joint Chiefs, had to remove me from my position at National Defense University. So he removed me, ordered me to go get a psychiatric exam because there had been so much, um, uh, I guess, uh, non-attribution complaints about my mental state, which I thought all these people were just out to get me, but they were actually correct and accurate in what they said. Um, and then a couple of months later, I crashed into severe depression uh, with psychosis uh, retired from the army, my career was over, and over the next two years was literally in a fight for my life. I had what they call passive suicidal ideations, where continually in my mind, I was running through my own brutal, violent, bloody death, which is very dangerous because a passive suicidal ideation can very quickly morph into an active ideation. And you can literally, without having any intent to kill yourself, you can go kill yourself. It's really a weird form of, um, of uh, suicidal behavior. So anyway, I was um, hospitalized at a VA psych ward for weeks, all kinds of different treatments, medications, including electroconvulsive therapy, which are basically electrical shocks to the brain to try to get you out of depression. Nothing worked until finally uh, I, we tried lithium. Within three days of taking lithium, my depression went away. And I began five years ago my road to recovery. Um, about two years ago, I said, I started telling my story publicly in, in talks and to my friends in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And, um, and then I started writing. And so I wrote a manuscript that tells the whole story, trying to get that published. And then last March, I wrote the task and purpose article you referred to. And then in the last six months, I've written about another, uh, five or six articles, and I've really devoted my life to mental health, telling my story to try to help stop stigma and save lives. I've got a virtual network of uh, mental wellness warriors, many who have a mental illness, uh, veterans, um, other people in the private sector who have companies that work mental health for vets. And I am working, speaking, writing, strategizing, networking, all about mental health focused on military and veterans. So that's the kind of the long and the short of my story with regard to bipolar. Okay. Uh, I, I'd like to back up a moment because, uh, I mean, it just I'm still processing all of it, and I've read it, and, I, and when I hear you say it, it, uh, it just comes to life that much more. But I, I'd like to go back to earlier on in your career. Um, and again, it, it, 36 years is a long time. We kind of fast forward to when you were a brigade commander. Um, somehow, uh, when getting in in 74, I mean, you know, all the smaller skirmishes, whether it's Panama, Grenada, you know, wasn't really conventional army forces, but Desert Storm, that whole thing missed you as well? Yes. So I volunteered and fought to go to every single one of those wars, big wars, little wars, skirmishes, um, other than war. 
And um, I was either in a type of unit that didn't get deployed. Like some of the, a bunch of those were really light fighter operations. Yeah. And I was in heavy forces. Or I was, I was on a deployment to go to, say, Somalia. And then we were on the West Coast at Fort Lewis. Things started to heat up in Korea. So they took us off the Somalia deployment list and focused us on Korea. So stuff like that kept happening. Um, when Desert Shield, Desert Storm hit, I was teaching at West Point, and I jumped up and down on my boss's desk like every single day saying, sir, you have to let me go. I mean, this is the biggest thing that's happened in my career. You've got to let me go to, uh, you know, to this operation. And he said, hey, I can't, I can't afford to let you leave. We have a vacancy in the classroom because we have to teach the cadets and get them ready to go out as lieutenants. So every single conflict was something like that. Um, an, another one, I was um, I was scheduled to go to uh, an individual filler in a war zone, and and, and then a, a deployment to Honduras came up, and so I got sent to Honduras instead. And another guy went to the uh, to the uh, conflict. So that just happened over and over. So, at any point in time, you know, when you're in this sort of hyper state. Um, you know, as you're, as you're leading up to this, and, and again, pre-9-11, as you're trying to get to, you know, a combat zone, I mean, th- there's there's nothing to you that indicates or no, nothing, nobody ever said anything to you that you're a little bit sort of different, if you will, if that's a kind way to put it. No, in fact, it was just the opposite. Um, my hyperthymia and then the early years of my bipolar, they actually helped me. They enhanced my performance. I mean, I had, you know... Uh, an overabundance of dopamine, endorphins, and other biochemicals that give you extra energy and drive and creativity. So the entire, my entire career, until I turned into a maniac with acute bipolar, um, I got advanced, promoted, praised for being the most energetic, the most enthusiastic, the hardest worker in whatever unit I was in, from second lieutenant to colonel, all the way up to two-star general. And um, so it was actually just the opposite. It, I was, you know, recognized and rewarded for having a biochemical imbalance. Um, so in much of what the Army culture, and I'm sure it's true for the other services, is, you know, the hua spirit, mm-hmm. heart charger, um, gung-ho. Those are the qualities we want in our leaders. And... I had that in excess, and so I was rewarded accordingly. In retrospect, knowing what you understand now about the disease that you had and what it led to, do you see spots in your career where that behavior was detrimental? Yes, I do. Um, give me an I example, was, please. And you want me to give a few examples? Sure, please. So, yes, I, looking back now, knowing what I now know with my understanding of bipolar disorder, hyperthymia, and mental illness in general, um, my whole life, starting from high school on, I was extreme. I was excessive, whether it was sports, working out, partying, traveling, skiing down through trees, over rocks, down chutes that were, you know, nobody should have been skiing on, um, my drinking was to an excess. Uh, everything I did was excessive. Um, in the in the in the uh, in my leadership jobs, I was 
over the top hua. Um, I took physical risks playing sports that I could have been very badly injured. And I, I was lucky doing obstacle courses where I would dive over things head first. At the last second, I would kind of tuck my head in and roll. Um, playing rugby, playing other contact sports was pretty much out of control. Got a lot of injuries, but that those were examples. Um, and if you fast forward it, I went back this year and I, I interviewed as many people as I could get a hold of that I had served with from lieutenant days all the way to two-star general days. I think and you're I going asked, to my next question, but go ahead. Okay. So I, I said to them, I said, did you, I said, first off, I've been di- I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I, it started in 2003. It got worse and worse until I was, you know, forced out of the army in 2014. Um, and I'm wondering, and here are the characteristics of bipolar. Here's what mania looks like. Here's what depression looks like. Did you see anything that troubled you or were indicators that I had bipolar during our time together? Um, and, and if so, what were they? And so in my early days, like as a lieutenant, captain, even as a major, everything was positive. Hey, sir, you were you know, the most motivational, inspirational, gung-ho, loved working for you. You were great. Pretty, that was 100%. People who worked with me as a battalion commander, and, and I started, my mania started creeping up and started getting worse. It wasn't full-fledged bipolar yet, but it was getting close. It was like sub-bipolar. They, they said, you know, as a matter of fact, now that you mention it, now you were really out there. And I said, give me some examples. Well, you know, the time we were on a staff ride, a Civil War staff ride, and we were all drinking, you know, we had been to the Jack Daniels distillery as part of, you know, getting in touch with America. Nice. And, uh, and so we were drinking that night, and we were all pretty hammered. And at midnight, you took all the officers out on a midnight run through the woods, that was really crazy because we had <laughs> broken legs, broken ankles, all kinds of injuries. And I mean, we liked your, you know, your party hua combat engineer spirit, but that was out of control. That was weird. Um, the, you oftentimes at formations like battalion formations, you know, like one time you ripped your shirt off and it was cold. And you had a big five for the fight in the fifth engineer battalion. You had a big five chased, shaved in your chest and had painted it in with engineer red color. And then you ran and jumped around the motor pool or in and out of the troops, waving a hatchet and yelling and screaming, hoo and engineers and, and all this kind of stuff. And that was pretty weird. Um, it, there were other things of extreme hoo ness and drinking. A lot of times alcohol was involved because that was my favorite go-to self-medication. And then I started getting pretty crazy religiously. I started getting really over-the-top religious. And my wife and kids, they really pointed it out. And they were really put off by it because, you know, I had been a cradle Catholic. And, you know, Catholics kind of keep their faith pretty private. They don't talk about it. They don't, they don't make a big deal out of it. They just try to live it. And, uh, and then before you know it, as a battalion commander, I was like really into religion, you know, evangelizing, you know, preaching the Bible and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, then near the end of my command tour, I literally worked doing like troop stuff, field stuff, training stuff, 
right up until the morning of my change of command. Well, that's fine, except there's a whole bunch of administrative stuff you have to do to close out a, an organization like a battalion. And that's a big 500 troops. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And there's OERs and there's logistics stuff and admin and you name it, you got awards. And I didn't do any of it. I just worked doing the fun stuff until that morning. And so my wife and kids had to pack up. And my wife did all the moving stuff by herself. I didn't do anything. Um, and then, even though I was authorized to help out. And then they drove away and left Fort Leonard Wood after the change of command. They, they took off. They were gone. I had to rent a room, the BOQ, Bachelor Officer Quarter, and I couldn't go back into the battalion because I wasn't the commander anymore. And so the staff had to shuttle boxes of paperwork and awards and OERs and you, know, you name it. They had to do it. So I was in the room at the BOQ for two weeks doing all the stuff I should have been doing like over the previous month. And my wife said, that's when I thought there was something wrong with you. I thought you had some kind of mental disorder, some sort of mental health issue, because that was not normal. Like no other battalion commander would ever do that and wouldn't allow themselves to get in that position. So I was pretty wacky there. And then I went from battalion command to the Army War College, and then I really got into religion, and I started getting crazier and crazier with the workouts and the drinking, and then went to Germany and was still ramping up, but didn't burst into full bipolar until I was in Iraq. And when I asked people who were with me in Iraq, what did you think? They said, you know, we do think you had, looking back, you did have some kind of mental health issues. For example, you really didn't hardly sleep at all in Kuwait or in Germany before we deployed or in Iraq. You didn't need to sleep. Um, you found a way to do, even after we had crossed the line, of, we were in Iraq in the fight, you figured out a way to kind of tuck away into a covered, concealed position every day to do like a short CrossFit type workout um, where you were like working out like a madman on the battlefield, not that you were going to get shot because you were like, you know, one terrain feature away. But but they said, you know, that was really, really strange. And senior NCOs said they were alarmed. But they, I said, well, why didn't you say anything? They said, because you were the colonel and I was a sergeant. And I, you know, I didn't, I just didn't feel like it was my place. You weren't doing anything illegal or immoral, but they thought it was really strange. Um, my battlefield circulation for a, colonel was a brigade commander was deemed by a lot of my subordinates as overly risky and excess uh, and i got my ass chewed by the corps commander a three-star general more than once where he said you know you're you're out of control you need to back off ramp it back a little bit uh you know we don't want you to get killed or captured which i mean everybody's at risk so i, I don't i don't say that i I feel kind of funny saying it, but it was an observation of people, which you asked about. When we settled down into the, you know, where we actually moved and lived on a base camp, and I was at Balad, the big, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and um, my PT habits went to extremes. I mean, I was, when I wasn't out doing battlefield circulation, I mean, I was running and taking troops out on two hours of PT during our sessions. And we ran, I mean, we were running 
between five and 10 miles. We were doing, you know, makeshift obstacle courses, pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, running up and down these enormous rock piles of gravel, which were a wicked workout, um, running up and down airplane uh, bunk shelters. Um, so it was, it was, you know, people thought it was really excess. Mm-hmm. And then I get really excess on religion. Like if I was in the base camp on Sundays, I would go to at least four religious services because I wanted to be with all the different troops, the evangelicals, the black gospel, the Catholic, the praise and worship. Um, I started going to, you know, in addition, doing Bible studies during the week, et cetera. So the religion and the working out were, were really deemed as excess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started when I would fall into the depressions, relatively short, not crippling. They were fairly, they were painful, but they weren't crippling. Um, when I would fall into depression, I would have like no energy, I couldn't keep up with briefings. I'd be falling asleep in briefings, couldn't concentrate. Um, I was sort of withdrawn. So I was swinging from this extreme extrovert energy, hyped up hua guy. And then I would dip into withdrawn, quiet, hardly talked, couldn't make decisions, indecisive. So those were a few of the things up through Iraq. And then as I became a general and in some of these bigger jobs that you mentioned in the, in the intro, I just started becoming more erratic, less sleep, sending emails and uh, text messages all hours, day and night, putting, you know, sending out dozens and dozens of them midnight and afterwards, um, putting hundreds of people on the CC list who had nothing to do with the job just because I thought they needed to know. And I was trying to build a network of networks. I had this vision of connecting my organization with like everybody in the world for pure goodness and situational awareness and good ideas. I became a good idea factory. Um, I started becoming grandiose where I thought I was working directly for God. God was giving me missions directly, and it was for him. Uh, I became over the top a religious zealot, started speaking faster and faster in forced speech. I sometimes spoke for an hour straight, sometimes two. Two people told me, one told me, he was in a job interview, he said I spoke to him for four hours straight. Another guy said I spoke to him for eight hours straight. I would call impromptu meetings that would go for two, three, four hours without a break that weren't on the schedule. I would run over on everything. I couldn't keep track of time. I was late for everything. I ran over. I would, then I started forgetting things. I forgot meetings, forgot events, forgot family events. Um, I started going on um, midnight bike rides in Washington, D.C., where I'd take off at midnight from my house at Fort McNair and I would pedal as fast as I could all around D.C. And I would I would have delusions, hallucinations that I would levitate up off of my bike. It would be flying like Superman over Washington, D.C., looking down at myself. Um, those are just those are a few uh, ideas. But it, it was it was pretty insane. OK. Um, oh, by the way, as a fellow Catholic, uh, I'm shocked that the Catholic guilt didn't send you into depression quicker because that's a lot of Catholic guilt to carry around. Trust me, I've been doing it for a long time. I kid. Um, I, I guess part of me is, is wondering, um, with all everything leading up to the deployment in Iraq, um, you know, how did you hyper-focus during actual combat operations themselves? Like, how did you manage to stay focused through... You know, we talk about the invasion, you know, and how long you were there for. 
um, and, and actual combat. Like, was that a struggle for you? Or you, I know you said you seem to thrive in those moments, but um, with your mind going so quickly sometimes in combat, that's a bad thing. Yes. So mania, remember I described from high school through Colonel, I had hyperthymia, right. mild mania. So on the on the kind of the curve. So I was I was in mania above normal performance and energy, and then it slowly ramped up, actually enhancing my performance. And it it didn't get bad, really really bad until I was a general. You know, several years later, um, it didn't get terrible until I was at National Defense University in 2014 as a two star. So no, I short answer is I did not have a problem. Focusing. In fact, I focus like a laser beam on the tasks at hand in combat. The only time I dipped out of that extreme focus and sharpness was when we were in the, the big base camp at Balad and I wasn't doing battlefield circulation. So if I was at Balad for three, four, five days a week, which was frequently the case because we had tons of planning to do and coordination and training, and we were running the counter IED training academy for the divisions. But when I was there at the base camp, and I sort of settled, and I wasn't, you know, hyper, then I had trouble concentrating. And it was because of the underproduction and distribution of those key biochemicals, namely dopamine endorphins. So once that level at biochemical level dropped, then I had a hard time concentrating and focusing. But once I had the vigilance of getting ready to go back outside the wire or being outside the wire, those problems went away and I was hyper-focused. I, I know nobody said anything to you along the way, as you mentioned earlier, but did you ever get a sense that maybe, you know, introspectively you weren't leading the best you could or did, did, did the mania just lead you to believe that you, everything was on the right track? Mania led me to believe I was on the right track. It it gave me a feeling of fearlessness, invincibility, complete over-the-top confidence in who I was, how much I knew, my experience, everything I was doing. And that confidence, I think, enhanced me as a leader because people looked at me and like, man, this guy's so confident. He's so strong. You know, knows what he's doing. You know, he just, I just exuded all of that. Um, so I never really saw any kind of a problem with myself, although I did feel strange and I felt a little bit of erosion of confidence when I was in a base camp and I felt depression because like in, in the, uh, in the mornings in the base camps, when I was depressed, like I would be just, I didn't want to get out of bed. I felt fearful, afraid, no confidence, like a failure, hopeless. And those are all just normal symptoms of depression. I mean, that's what depression feels like. And it was a relatively low level of depression, but I felt terrible. But the army structure forced me to get up and go. Mm -hmm. And the minute I got my stuff on and I went out and I was in front of soldiers doing PT, the depression lifted. It just went away. And I felt like Superman again, you know, because I was in really good shape and a good athlete. How did you manage to hide the lows? 
because you didn't hide the highs very well. They they served you well, so there was never a reason to hide them. But were you cognizant of the lows enough that you were, you were willfully hiding them from people? Um, it wasn't any kind of a conscious hiding because I didn't even know I was in depression. I really didn't know what depression yeah, well, that, was. That's kind of what I was saying. Like sometimes it just comes out and you don't recognize where you are and people can, can sense it, can see it. I, I think the minute I would go out to, as painful as it was to get up, put my clothes on and get out to the formation, the PT formation, as painful as that was, the minute I was there, it was, and I, I was in front of the troops, it was, boom, game on, depression gone. Then I did PT, but then during the day, the meetings and going to the mess hall and the briefings and the planning sessions, I would, I would just kind of slump. And people noticed it in retrospect. They told me in retrospect, they said, yeah, seems like in the meetings and in the briefings when we were at Balad, you just were a completely different guy. You didn't have the energy. You didn't have the enthusiasm. You didn't have the sharpness and the focus that you had most of the time. And what they were describing was a, you know, kind of a bipolar. <laughs> yeah, bipolar. They were describing bipolar that I went that's from what it high- so- I mean, again, I have a very rudimentary understanding of it, but that's what it sounds like. You know, as you tell it, it there's this, your people are, are seeing the highs and the lows, and that's generally what people think of. You're exactly right. And, you know, one of the problems, I'm, I'm working on a paper now, it'll come out sometime probably this month. But one of the problems, like in my case, and I think still today even, is Soldiers and people and service members, they're not really trained in the basics of the most common mental illnesses. I think the military is doing a good job training people on what does depression look like, which is good. And what does suicidality look like? You know, someone who's thinking about or ideating about suicide, what does that look like? So we've ramped that up. But as far as I know, there's still nobody's training people about bipolar which have very clear, distinctive symptoms that if you know the basics and what they are, they're, they're actually quite easy to recognize. Like mania is pretty clear if you know what the markers are, but nobody knew what it was all the way through 2014 when I was a two-star and you know got removed from command by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. By the way, if you're going to be removed from your command as a general, might as well be by the chairman, the number one officer. <laughs> if you're going to go out, go out in style, exactly. Um, all of a sudden, chairman of the Joint Chiefs not the most favorable position in America anymore. Uh, kind of strange how times have changed. But uh, from that standpoint, you know, again, I, I, I'm just sort of uh, I marvel at the idea of how you were able to be so highly functioning because typically the swings um, they start to get more repetitive, right? Like they they come quicker and and go quicker, um, and so those get picked up on a lot quicker. And the fact that you were able to survive and thrive. Uh, in an environment where, uh, you know, people are asked to do a lot of things. And some people, most people just shut their mouth and do what they're told because of the the, the structure of what our organization is. But still, at some point, as you, as you go forward in this uh, and you're beyond 2003, you're into a different army where, you know, people raise their hand and start to alert. Hey, this is not right. Like, this is somewhere out of whack. Um, are you surprised you never had a complaint like a formal complaint made, an IG complaint or anything against you along the way? I, yes, I am surprised, you know, after Colonel, 
Um, you know, I became a one star pretty quickly. Um, you know, I went through after I came out of mostly high mania in Iraq, came back to Germany. I had a very high level staff job working for a four star. And it was a painful, hard job that nobody wants. Um, you know, I was the deputy G3 for U.S. Army Europe. Hard, tough, thankless job. And I was in a very depressed state. And I am surprised nobody in that period pulled me aside and said, hey, Martin, you know, I had always heard you were a really upbeat, positive, energetic guy. Man, are you okay? Are you doing all right? And nobody did. I did go see the doctor, though, and said, hey, I'm really low energy. I feel terrible since I got back from Iraq. And they gave me an evaluation where they checked my blood and all that. They said, no, you're fine. I also reported depression <laughs> back from Iraq. And they said, are you suicidal? No. Do you want to hurt anybody or yourself? No. Um, they said, well, what do you do to compensate for your de depression? I said, well, you know, I do, I do intense PT workouts. I listen to motivational music. I recite motivational Bible verses and I drink heavily. And they said, oh, you're fine. That, that's <laughs> Let's go back to work. And, you know, as I went from one job to another, um, people should have reported me and they, they should have. And, and I totally understand why a direct subordinate doesn't feel good or lacks the confidence to go to a general and say, hey, um, hey, general, I think you're displaying signs of a mental illness. That's an unnatural level of candor to expect a person to do. Right. But. I mean, in each one of these jobs, I mean, I had senior colonels working around me. I had one stars working around me, two stars. I, I had an ambassador. So if someone was seeing really weird behavior, like my aide or my people in the office or whatever, I think they should have felt confident enough to go to one of those very high ranking, almost peer of mine and said, hey, I'm, I'm seeing something really wrong with General Martin. But even that didn't happen until the very end in 2014 when I really went crazy. Um, there were people at NDU, National Defense University, who went to the media and gave them, fed them all kinds of information about you know, the transformation I was trying to do on behalf of General Dempsey, about my personal behavior. And he, this, uh, a reporter, Tom Ricks, in foreign policy, famous guy, he wrote several columns about me with information from insiders, but none of my superiors paid any attention to it because they thought he was kind of a gadfly. He didn't have credibility. Senior army officers didn't respect him or think didn't didn't um, they just didn't believe in him. They didn't have any confidence in what he had to say. So his articles, which represented a cry for help from my subordinates, were ignored. Um, which is kind of an interesting thing. Um, so the other thing is people, they, they, they didn't feel confident. They didn't recognize what bipolar was. They also had a view that if my wife and family didn't see a problem with me, then why should they? Right. He lives with his wife all the time. But my wife couldn't see it because she'd known me since I was a lieutenant. And it's like a frog in a pot of water when you turn the heat on low. I mean, so, you know, 30 plus years later, I, I've gone mad, but she didn't see it. She just saw individual events, not a pattern mm -hmm. that would affect bipolar. Um, and then um, here's the other thing that, you know, is, is pretty interesting. 
a lot of my subordinates, all the way up until I was removed from command, they really liked me. They thought I was a great leader. They thought I was a great guy. They saw the transformational change that I was making on behalf of the four stars. And they didn't want me to get hurt. They didn't want to get rid of me. They liked working for me, even though they thought there was something wrong. So that comes into play. So there were a lot of people who desperately wanted to get rid of me because they could see I had gone mad. But there were, you know, a whole bunch who saw just the opposite. I had an event when I was commandant of the uh, Army War College. So the new students come in, and these guys are all lieutenant colonels and colonels. And so we're having a great time. So all these special operators, we're drinking beer at a tiki bar, and we had had this big welcome picnic and everything. It's at night. The community pool is closed. There's a pretty high fence. You're not allowed to go swimming when the pool is locked and there's not a lifeguard. I mean, this is common sense. I mean, I signed the commanding general. I signed the regulations, okay? <laughs> so, uh, you know, a couple of the guys, you know, so there's a bunch of Army Rangers and, you know, Green Berets and SEALs. And they're like, hey, you know, hey, let's go, let's go swimming. Let's go over the fence and jump in the pool. And, uh, you know, we've all been drinking heavily. And so this one guy's like, yeah, and the senior ranger is General Martin. Come on, sir, let's go. Next thing you know, I'm climbing over this 10-foot fence. And we're in the pool swimming around. We're drunk. We're playing grab ass, throwing each other in. And, and then one of the guys says, holy shit. The NPs could come by and we'll all get arrested. And that would be really bad, like, before our school even starts. So we scrambled out of there, climbed over the fence, came back. So anyway, that got reported and to the deputy commander, who was a colonel, who worked for me. And I didn't think the guy liked me. I, I thought the deputy kind of didn't like me and kind of didn't support me. We were very, very different kind of people. And um, so the next morning, he calls me and said, Sir, can I come talk to you right now? Can I come to your quarters? And I said, yeah, sure. And I figured it had something to do with the swimming incident. So he comes over and he said, sir, um, did you lead a bunch of new students over the fence into the pool last night? I said, yes, I did. I said, you should feel completely entitled to report me to the chief of staff of the Army and the TRADOC commander and I'm fully prepared to be relieved from command because what I did was really stupid. It was under the influence, terrible example. Plus, it was a safety violation. And um, so go ahead, do your thing. You're the deputy. Report me. And he said, no, I just I just wanted to find out if it was true or not. I'm not going to report you. And I'm telling nobody else to report you because we love you as our commander. We don't want to lose you. We don't want to lose you and get somebody else who might be a dickhead. And uh, so we want to keep you. So don't worry about it. But I would recommend you not do anything like that. <laughs> and then I had another event similar to that where I was commander out at uh, Fort Leonard Wood. And, you know, I went to a ball, one of those big military balls where everybody's dressed in their bow ties and stuff. And the troops started doing keg stands. And then the NCOs started doing keg stands. Oh. So then the chant goes up. You know, CG keg stand, CG keg stand. I couldn't control myself. So I'm over there setting the record for keg stands, get completely smashed, falling down drunk. And I've got a, my wife's trying to pull me out of there. I've got a TDY to the West Coast the next morning, flight at like 6 a.m. It's now midnight at Fort Leonard Wood. Anyway, not, and, and, you know, that was another bad thing. One of my generals at Fort Leonard Wood, you know, a remarkable guy who I have the highest respect for, really tough as nails, 
tremendously talented. I asked him in this little research project I did, did you see anything? He said, wow, because he had read the Task and Purpose article. He said, you know, he said, I really applaud your, you for writing that article. He said, now the lights are going on. Now I understand because you were, you were freaking wacko. You were nuts. He said, I didn't know what was going on with you. I basically, you know, and he was a one star. I was his two star boss. He said, I wrote you off. And I just, my whole thing was I had to find strategies to work around you as my boss. But now I understand. That's it. I mean, you made you made your career sound like a really good frat party. Like, uh, you know, it, 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 it sounds like a lot of fun on the outside. Um, because, hey, I mean, work hard, play hard, right? Like, I mean, it's just, you know, they go hand in hand sometimes. And, and looking back on it, you know, I've kind of held to that same maxim throughout my military career. Like, yeah, listen, man, you know, as long as you get results and you produce – I can I can put up with a lot, right? I, I generally can put up with a lot, and we we can we can do some dumb stuff to blow off some steam that we generally look the other way on because we all produce when it's time to produce. Um, but it's it's shocking to to understand how all this went on because again, when you talk about it, um, I would think it's it sounds fairly normal. Now, does it sound normal that a, a flag officer is leading a, a charge of guys over the fence to the pool? No, but if I was there with you, I would have followed you. Like I, I, and I wouldn't have thought twice about it. I'm sure nobody else did either. Um, cause you kind of got top cover. Um, but again, yeah, probably, probably not the smartest move. Uh, and, and there's some sticks in the mud who might've ended your career at that point in time for doing so. Uh, I, I just, I'm trying to understand better you know, how you get from these moments that on the surface seem so fun to a moment where you realize it's not fun anymore. Like what about 2014 really crystallized it for you that we've moved beyond fun into dangerous? In 2014, I would say actually 2013 into 2014, my level of mania, and it probably even started before that, started really ratcheting up to where it was it was an extremely high level of mania i was still performing brilliantly in some ways getting tremendous results for the, for transforming the university which made you know the chairman really happy uh, i was getting phenomenal oers reports press everybody who visited ndu and saw what we were doing from secretary of defense down all, I mean, I was working at a very high level. They all gave rave reports and reviews. But my behavior started getting very bizarre, very extreme. Delusions and psychosis and paranoia started uh, infusing, intertwining themselves into the mania. In the psychosis, I was paranoid about everybody. I then started in the winter of 2014 into the spring. I started believing I was being watched, that somebody was watching me 24 hours a day, that people were wearing wires and recording what I said. They were videotaping me. They were going through my trash, counting how many bottles of beer or booze there were in the, tra in the trash. Um, they were, you know, hyper-watching every penny that I spent as, as the commander of the unit. Um, I, I started getting religiously 
and this connection with God and this feeling of invincibility that I was a genius, that I was the Apostle Paul in a, in a military uniform, that I was doing this transformational work as God's agent. I started speaking in tongues, started singing and praying in tongues, started seeing the descent of the Holy Spirit over my house, started seeing it come down out of the sky, started running around the house, putting Bibles and crosses and crucifixes in all the windows and the doors, started talking to everybody, including complete strangers, about coming to work at NDU, about coming on to Fort McNair for a tour, about coming and having a meal at my house, welcoming strangers to stay at our house, bringing people in and feeding them meals like on the spur of the moment, which is completely inconsiderate and of, of my wife, um, forgetting family events, uh, taking off at weird times. Like, uh, you know, instead of going to a meeting at NDU, I'd grab all the people and we'd go out and we would do a, like a force march around the base doing our, our meeting as we walked. And of course, you know, the sweltering DC humidity, uh, that was pretty brutal. Um, you know, I, I, I could go on and on, but it, it just got more and more extreme to where the happy, um, enthusiastic mania started getting intertwined with a dark, sinister, almost an evil level of thinking. I started having flashbacks to Iraq. Um, you know, like we'd be in a contentious meeting and I would have a flashback and, you know, start seeing stuff, you know, blowing up and, you know, dead bodies and, you know, fires and all kinds of stuff like that. And then the people in my meeting that were arguing with me, they would morph into like Iraqi soldiers or terrorists or, you know, guerrilla fighters. I mean, that's pretty weird, pretty strange. Yeah. And then the, um, then other meetings, people who were against my transformation, I, they would like, I'd be sitting in the meeting and their face would morph into a rat or a snake or some kind of a, a, a like a swamp like creature. And that started getting kind of bizarre. And I, I still didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I was like, wow, this is kind of creepy. This is weird. But these people are evil because I'm on a mission from God and they're the evil ones. They're against me. They're against the chairman. Uh, and, and that started taking me to dark dangerous places. When do you have your first suicidal thought? My first suicidal thought was after I had crashed into severe depression, and then I had psychosis, delusions that I had committed. Um, there's explanation for this, but I had committed um, financial fraud against the government <clears throat> that in my use of funds, we had misspent, misallocated you know, money on TDY wasn't straight, um, et cetera. And so I had these fears and delusions that I had committed crimes and that I was being watched and taped and videoed and all that kind of stuff. And once that psychosis took over in my mind, I had a psychotic break from reality. I mean, I, I didn't, I was divorced from the real world combined with this crippling, hopeless, dark depression and the first time uh, I would remember any kind of suicide thinking was it was so bad that I thought I was for sure going to go to prison. Um, and, you know, I, I was riding down the highway 
from DC to Williamsburg to see my sister. And I took my seatbelt off on the highway. And I said, I hope we get in a crash so that I get thrown through the windshield and get killed. That's a passive suicidal ideation. And then I started getting visions of myself. My wife was driving because I couldn't drive, um, grabbing the steering wheel and boom, turning it into a head-on collision, which would kill me without a seatbelt. It would also kill her. But, but I didn't do anything. But those are suicidal ideations. And then when I retired and moved to New Hampshire, I started having suicidal ideations um, when I would get out for a walk up in New Hampshire, because I tried, my wife tried to force me to get out for a walk, which was a ton of work, but it was good for me, and I did it. And there was a stretch along the walk where it was like a state highway with big 18-wheeler trucks barreling down the road 60 miles an hour. And I had this vision over and over again that this invisible force would grab me around the chest and throw me under the wheels of the truck. And then I would be basically ripped apart. My body parts would be thrown everywhere. Um, you know, like if you see an animal that goes underneath an 18 wheeler, it's just, I mean, they get torn to shreds. Sure, yeah. I started seeing that all the time. And then it became worse though, because I would, um, uh, I, I, I would feel that that force was going to do it. And I started to have to run into the woods when a truck went by and hold on to a tree to anchor myself. So I couldn't get thrown under. And, then I started having visions that without even wanting to, that I would throw myself under the truck, which is you're right on the, you're right on the edge, the dangerous edge of going from a passive, passive to an active. Right. And then the other big one was that I was sure I was going to get arrested. I was certain I was going to go to federal prison and in prison you know, imagine, you know, a, a general in a federal prison, what would happen to you, that I would be, I had visions over and over of being beaten and stabbed to death, and then dying face down in a pool of my own blood gurgling as I died. And so when I finally, a friend of mine, an army comrade, a buddy, a battle buddy, he he said, hey, man, you are really, really sick. Um, we need to get you into the VA. He did some research. I lived in New Hampshire. There was a really good psych uh, department in the at the one in White River Junction, Vermont. So I went there, and I did when I did my um, first meeting with the psychiatrist. He asked a question no one else ever asked, and every psychiatrist should ask this. He asked the standard: Are you suicidal? No. Do you want to hurt yourself? No. Do you want to hurt others? No. Then he said, first time ever, do you have any morbid thoughts of death or dying? And I said. Yeah, I have them every day, all the time. They continuously torture me, and they're terrifying. And he said, tell me what they are. So I told him what I just told you. And he said, hey, this is really dangerous. You need to stay with us for a while. And so I went into inpatient, to the inpatient psych ward at the VA. Best thing that ever happened to me, um, it was the beginning. It, it was like sort of that's where I bottomed out, and I began – the six month climb back to sanity. It didn't, I didn't get really better until I started taking lithium six months later, but it was the beginning of the journey out of hell. I wanted to back up and ask you about a specific moment. Um, when after, you know, 35 years, uh, your boss walks into your office and tells you your career is over or you're about to be relieved. Uh, 
give me that conversation. How does it all go? What do you remember about it? Okay, so in spring of 2014 at NDU, my behavior had become so erratic, bizarre, disruptive. The chairman, who was a wonderful guy, I loved him to death, he had been, you know, I'd worked with or for him or around him for about 20 years and knew we were, I would say he was a friend, a boss, a mentor, wonderful and guy. this is General Dempsey, correct, at the time? Yeah, yeah okay. General Dempsey. Um, so... He was shocked to hear all this bad stuff about me because all he had ever known was the really good, positive, you know, results-oriented Greg Martin. And he treated me very fairly. He did three separate assessments by outside objective experts, you know, retired generals, you know, SESs, ambassadors. And they did an assessment where they looked, they talked to all the students and they looked at the curriculum. They did another one where they talked to the faculty and the staff. And they did another one where they focused directly on me. All three of the assessments said, Martin's doing an amazing job. He has transformed NDU in record time. He's achieved everything you wanted him to do. To do. Um, we like General Martin. Um, he's got a remarkable personality, but... He appears to have lost his mind. He appears to be crazy, insane, mad, emotionally unstable. We think he has a mental illness. So Dempsey took all that aboard, and, um, and he said, wow. And they all said that we recommend that he be removed from command or relieved from command. By the way, Dempsey didn't relieve me. I'll talk about that in a second. He did me a huge favor. But he came to the conclusion that uh, – that I needed to go for the good of myself, my own mental health, and the good of the organization. So middle of July, I, I get a, a phone call to my office. Secretary says, it was a Friday. He said, uh, hey, General Dempsey wants you to report to his office Monday morning at 10 o'clock. I said, topic? Uh, no topic. He just wants to talk to you. But he did say um, that he would like it if you brought your wife, although it's not mandatory. Can't order your wife to come to a meeting. So... <laughs> Went there, went to the Pentagon, drove over to the Pentagon. and um, Did your wife come with you? She did. Okay. She did. She did. And because um, she really knows General Dempsey well, likes him. They're, they're pretty good friends, too. And um, she just thought with all the stuff going on that it would be good for her to go. By the way, the week, a week prior, 10 days prior, there had been an event where one of the employees said she felt very, uh, she felt worried that I had, you know, gone crazy and I could be a threat to the workforce, that I might do harm to the employees. And remember, this is in the wake just months earlier of the um, shooting at the Navy, Navy Yard Annex. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I was out of the office and she had gone into some of the senior leaders at, on the staff and said, hey, I'm really worried. And, um, you know, most generals have a, many generals keep a, you know, a pistol, a firearm in their safe, which is completely legal and authorized to do because you have a GO pistol. And so they searched my office to see if I had any weapons. And um, in, in so doing, one of the guys, one of the senior officials, um, alarmed by uh, my staff, my personal staff, like the driver, the XO, the aide, they were alarmed by his kind of overly aggressive, accusatory manner, 
that I was some kind of, you know, deranged, wacko, dangerous guy. They found that very unsettling and troubling. And so uh, they told me, they said, hey, you're these that so-and-so led a search of your office. We were really troubled. We didn't think that was really done properly. You know, he was basically accusing you of being some kind of a deranged potential killer. So anyway, the next morning, and I did, it didn't bother me. I was manic, and it didn't trouble me at all. I just said, well, that guy's part of the enemy guerrilla force against the changes we've been trying to make to transform the school. But the next morning, a um, one of those individuals or more, they were so uh, alarmed by this guy, the senior guy's behavior, they reported that they thought he was going to try to kill me. Oh. <laughs> okay, so a report went into the to the uh, to the to um to me, to me to me, and I had just finished PT. And my next door neighbor was a two-star military district of Washington commander, has all the MPs in the entire district of D.C. They all work for him. And so one of one of these subordinates came running across the field and says, hey, General Martin, we've got a uh, we've got a uh, what we think is a legitimate complaint that so and so. Is got a weapon and is going to come try to kill you or do you harm? And. And then my neighbor's there who has all the MPs. He said, well, you know, who is it? Do you know this guy? Do you take it seriously? I said, I said, yeah, I know him. And he's, you know, a disgruntled employee. And he has been angry at me for two years because of various personnel actions and different philosophies on how to lead the place. I said, yeah, I, I take it seriously. It, it doesn't surprise me. I'm so, I, you know, I, I, I guess I said I'm surprised it has come to this. But knowing the guy in the hostile environment, I take it seriously. And he said, okay, I'm going to execute a active shooter um, scenario. So he did. He, he called his, you know, his operation sergeant on duty at the headquarters, said, here's the situation, um, active shooter drill. But it wasn't a drill, it was real. And you, so it was not only MPs, it was Washington, D.C. police. And next thing you know, there's, you know, an armada of you know, blue and red flashing lights swarming around National Defense University, MPs, DC cops, you know, sweeping through the buildings, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to protect me. And, you know, they found the alleged guy and he was not intending to do me harm. He had no weapon. So they, they did apprehend him, though, but they quickly decided you know, this guy is not a threat. He's he's not going to do anything to General Martin. And, oh, by the way, you know, they talked to me, and General Martin's not a threat. He doesn't have a weapon. He's not going to hurt anybody. No, This whole thing, you know, was a non-event. But when you have an active shooter drill involving National Defense University, it's cool, in D.C., and this, this goes all the way up to the SecDef. So they quickly uh, initiated a 15-6 investigation. Oh, and by the way, the, the, uh, the MD, the... Part of an active shooter drill is to provide force protection for the threatened people. And so the um, the MDW commander said, hey, I can give you MP protection for a week. Um, what do you think? And I said, well, given how hostile the environment is and how many people hate me and have been doing press reports and anonymous reports to the chairman and want to get rid of me, 
I, I yeah, I feel I feel there is a threat, but I don't think I need MPs. And then so the guy, my the commander looked at my wife who was outside and said, What do you think, Maggie? And Maggie said, said, This freaking place is so evil. I want MP protection. I don't trust these people. They've been out to get my husband. It's a nasty, evil, disgusting place. And she said, Greg, you may not want MPs, but I do. And so he said, okay. And so we had MPs guarding me and reporters for a week. And so they did a 15-6. And the whole thing, you know, there was no life-death situation, but it happened because of the bizarre, toxic, insane environment that had developed under my command during recent months when I was in a state of acute mania, paranoia, psychosis. So that 15-6 was the final straw where the three-star who did the investigation went to the chairman and said, this is the final straw. You've got to let this guy go, like, immediately. So anyway, the chairman called me in, and um, I came into his office. Maggie sat in the holding room, the waiting room, and he said, Greg, gave me a big hug, said, Greg, I love you like a brother. You have done an amazing job. You have carried the ball from the end zone into the red zone in two years. No one could have done the work you have transforming NDU. But your time at NDU is over. You have until 1700 today to resign in writing or I will fire you. It's your choice. And when you leave this office, I am directing you to set up a mental health psychiatric evaluation at Walter Reed to check out your mental health. What are your questions? And so then, you know, questions we discussed. He asked me to tell my side of the story, which I did, that change is hard, you know, huge resistance to change, um, that I moved fast, aggressively, hard, um, that I did everything he wanted me to do, plus more in two years. And, um, and then if he just gave me, you know, another year, I could really get the ball into the end zone. And he, you know, he laughed and chuckled. And, uh, and we talked, we had a great conversation. And, uh, and then he said, uh, hey, call Maggie in. So Maggie came in, he gave her the short version. She, he asked for her version of the story. And she thought, you know, that NDU was really a bad, nasty place. People, guerrilla warfare, bureaucratic resistance, how to get me. But at the end of it all, I was so high, so manic. I gave Dempsey a huge hug and said, thank you, sir. I believe this is God's will. And, you know, God put me at NDU. I did all this stuff for, for, for God. And now God's going to give me an even bigger, better mission, you know, for his glory and his kingdom. And, you know, I, I left happy as a kite. That's unreal. So you couldn't even process what was happening at the moment? No. When does it hit you? Um, it, it hit me a few days later and I was in an extreme state of religious fervor as well. well. Let me ask you, did, did you write the resignation letter that day? Absolutely. Okay. I wrote it for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, he wanted me to go and I'm not going to buck that. You know, he, I respected him. I respected his, uh, what, you know, his authority. Um, and 
he wanted me to go and you're if you're removed from command, which is what I was, I was forced out. That is very different than being relieved from command. If you're relieved, there are financial implications, there are rank implications, there are investigations that go on to see what your last date of quote unquote honorable service was. So when you get relieved, they could go all the way back one, two, three ranks and make you retire at that rank with all that pay differential. And so, you know, I, Dempsey did me a huge favor. He knew I was mentally ill. He forced me to get a mental health evaluation, which, by the way, I got three different evaluations that month. The first one evaluated by two doctors. They said, you're fine. You're fit for duty. There's yeah. nothing wrong. With you. So that report went to Dempsey's office and they said, do another one. And uh, so I went back a week later, did another evaluation with a third doctor, the chief of psychiatry. They said the same thing. You're fine. Then I did a third one. You're fine. It wasn't until four months later when I had crashed into depression and they were able to connect the dots between mania and depression that the psychiatrists were able to say, aha, you have bipolar disorder. But to go to your question, it, it, the, re, the removal really hit me a couple few days after um, I was removed when psychosis and the fear of being arrested started really pounding into my brain. And then I got overtaken with manic anger and manic rage against the people who had you know, put in all the complaints against me and forced me out. Then I started spinning into a very dark form of mania. And mania comes in different flavors. There's the happy, enthusiastic side of mania, and there's the angry, mean, vicious, psychotic side of mania. And I, I went into that side of mania. I was no longer a happy, jolly, good guy, manic maniac. I was dark and mean and in a state of rage. And that's when it really hit me. I mean, that's just a, it's incredible process. Um, so when you hear a doctor finally tells you, you know, you have bipolar disorder. What go through? What goes through your mind? Are you resistant to the idea? Does it does does something click for you? Up until that that diagnosis that I did have bipolar in November. Up until that point, I never believed there was anything wrong with me. I always thought it was somebody else, it was somebody out to get me, somebody who was trying to sabotage my transformation plans. But when the depression hit me, which is the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life, when I, when I was in a state of crippling, dark, hopeless depression where I didn't want to live and I was terrifying psychosis, I knew there was something wrong. I just didn't know what it was. But when the doctor told me, you have bipolar disorder, I said, Thank you, doctor. Now I know what's wrong with me. I believe you. I accept you. I, am, I embrace this. Now, doctor, I will do anything to get better because my life sucks. I am in li literally, I am in a state of mental hell. And you tell me what to do. I'll take medication, anything you want. And so I totally embraced it. Uh, do you... 
do, do you pick up the phone and call General Dempsey at that point in time? Do you start calling people and letting them know? Or are you sort of embarrassed by the diagnosis? Like, how are you processing with everybody else around you? Um, I, I was not embarrassed by it or ashamed of it because I knew it wasn't my fault. I knew I had caused it. Mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't because I was weak or lacked willpower or lacked character. Cause I, I knew myself, I was strong. I was, you know, uh, you know, a warrior. Um, what I did once I got the diagnosis that day, I asked the doctor, are you going to call my boss? And I had left NDU by that point, And I was put in a kind of a soft landing job. And by the way, the Army, once I was pushed out of NDU, rightfully so, um, the Army, big Army, took me back from the joint world. And that was General Odierno, the late General O. It was General Campbell, the vice, um, General Grizzoli, the, the uh, director of the Army staff. Those guys were great. I mean, they lived the ethos, don't never leave a fallen comrade. Because I was a fallen comrade. Right. They picked me up and they said, Greg, you, you got, here's what we'll do for you. You can either retire in 30 days or we can give you a, a job that's meaningful and important, but that you can kind of have a glide path towards your scheduled retirement date. And, you know, we'll let you do that if you want. And so I thought about it. I said, well, what are the choices in the glide path soft job? And they said, well, one of them, you can work on the uh, army staff at the Pentagon. I'm like, nah, don't want to do that. And then I said, you know, working with the vice chief of staff, who was a great guy, but I didn't want to do that. And they said, or you can go back to the army Corps of engineers, work for general Tom Bostick and, you know, do whatever Bostick wants you to do special projects, whatever. I said, okay, I'll, I'll take the job with Bostick. And, um, Bostic is one of the greatest leaders I've ever known, one of the best human beings, phenomenal person. So when I got the diagnosis, uh, November 2014, I asked the doc, I said, you know, are, are you going to write this up? Are you going to send it to my boss? What are you going to do with it? And he said, I, I will give, I'll write it up for you. I'll put it in your records and I'll send it to your boss, Lieutenant General Bostic. So he did. And Bostic got the diagnosis and Bostic sent it up to uh, so I, that's the only the only one that uh, I were as aware got it directly from the doc, and um, and uh, so it went up to um, Bostic. I'm sure he told the chief of staff of the army, the vice chief, and I'm sure they told General Dempsey that Martin's been diagnosed. He's in terrible shape. He's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He's been put on um, what do you call it? Uh, the medical leave for a while. And, uh, and then when I got home w- w- that evening, and I was at home, um, uh, well, I guess I was on convalescent leave to sort of recover. Uh, General Bostic came to my door. We were neighbors on Fort McNair. So he walked down the street, knocked on the door, said, hey, Greg, you know, can I talk to you? And so we talked. And he said, hey, look, you know, just do whatever. You're on, di- you're on uh, convalescent leave for 30 days. But you can do, you just do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself your family, your medical situation, your retirement, you just do that, whatever it takes. And instead of just taking it in as, at his word, I, I did the 30 days convalescent, but I never got my convalescent leave renewed. And, but I, I was in such crippling, horrible shape. I, I could hardly go to work. I could hardly do anything. I could hardly talk on the phone, which is the nature of really bad depression. And, um, 
so I went stretches weeks, you know, at a time where I didn't go to work, but I didn't go back and get that re-stamped, revalidated by my three-star boss. So suddenly my psychosis came into my mind. I'm like, oh my God, I've been a I am absent without leave. I am taking an army paycheck, sitting in my quarters, mostly laying down in bed, depressed. I can't read. I can't write. I can't talk on the phone. I'm doing nothing. I, I am defrauding the U.S. government by taking this paycheck. And, oh, by the way, they know I'm doing this. It's really a sinister plot for my AWOL time to build up, and then they're going to have more charges to throw against me to convict me to go to jail. And I twisted this whole thing in my mind instead of just believing my three-star boss when he said, do what you got to do. He meant it. But I couldn't, I couldn't take yes for an answer. And, um, and it just tortured me, and I got worse and worse and worse. Uh, how do you get to the conclusion or get to the point where you realize that, you know, you have to start taking lithium to fix this. I mean, is this a trial by error thing with your doctors? Yes, it was during my remaining months in DC before I retired. Um, and I can go into more detail, but, um, the doctors tried a bunch of, uh, mood stabilizing and psychotic stabilizing medications. None of them did me any good. All they did was make me groggy and sleepy. They had no effect. My condition kept getting worse. One of the bizarre twists in this was the doctors, the last person they expect to see with bipolar is a two-star general who had been highly, highly successful. Bipolar mostly strikes people when they're 18 to 25, young soldiers, NCOs, and officers. That's who typically gets it. So they had a hard time believing what they were seeing, and they didn't want me to get a med board, which is very painful for a senior officer. A med board's not that bad for a junior guy. It's pretty straightforward. But when you're a senior officer and then there's rank and there's pay and retirement, it becomes a bureaucratic nightmare. And given my mental condition, they didn't want to put me through that. So they never really treated me with the heavy medicine for bipolar, which would have set up a red star cluster and triggered a med board. They also didn't put me into inpatient, which looking back, I should have been put in the Walter Reed inpatient psych ward. For weeks, I, that's where I needed to be. But they didn't do it because they thought they were doing me a favor. So um, moved to New Hampshire, was basically in this state of mental hell all the way till March of 2016. When I went inpatient, they tried new and stronger, more focused bipolar medications, but none of them lifted my depression. The electroconvulsive therapy didn't. But And so then during the summer, the following summer, my wife, we did marriage counseling. We did every kind of treatment you can imagine. She finally was at her wit's end. And so she said, we got to try something different. So she called my doctor and said, hey, whatever you're doing isn't working. You've got to try something stronger. Uh, I can't take it anymore. So I talked to my doctor. He said, okay, come up here. Let's meet. And the last big thing was lithium. And lithium is is really the most, it's like bringing in, you know, airstrikes on top of your own position. I mean, it's it's serious stuff. Right. And it, it's a natural salt that is harvested out of the earth. It's in the chemical table of periodic elements. And it is the best mood stabilizer by far 
for people that it works for. It doesn't work for everybody, but it has side effects, which I can go into. It does have negative side effects, potentially on liver, kidneys, uh, your balance, your agility, your coordination. It can put weight on you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some people, it makes their hair fall out. I didn't have to worry about that. Um, but we said, okay, let's do it. Let's bring in the artillery. I'll go for it. And um, within three days, I felt like my old self, pre-bipolar. I was happy again. I had energy. I was enthusiastic. I started, you know, getting active, swimming, hiking. It was the turnaround was lit almost overnight. It was remarkable. And I since then, that was September of 2016. Then we moved to Florida for the sunshine, the brightness, which has an actual chemical, physical effect on your brain, um, the functioning of your brain circuitry. Uh, I have not had a bad day in over five years. Wow. And I hadn't, I hadn't had a good day in two or three years prior to that. I, I, it was unbelievable. I have not had anything. I have not been even close to depression. I haven't had any mania. I've my pre-bipolar days of having hyperthymia, which is a continual state of mild mania, which is an advantage. It's a blessing. Um, but I have had to, and this is maybe a follow-up question, I, I did have to sort of rebuild my life, kind of rebuild my marriage, my family, uh, structure, meaning, purpose, physical fitness. Um, I had to learn to deal with anxiety, anger, um, PTSD, rage, those things, which are different than mania and depression. Those have been my biggest challenges, and I've really learned to deal with them. So uh, how do you um, how do you get to a point where you're comfortable telling this story, your story, to America on multiple platforms? So a few years ago, my biggest source of friendship is at the gym, the local gym in Cocoa Beach, Florida. It's a wonderful place, really friendly atmosphere. Everybody goes there, wants to be in shape. They're active. They're moving. And it's got a really friendly uh, culture. So anyway, um, after working out one day, I was walking out with some friends, and they see my um, vehicle. And it's got a disabled veteran um, thing on, on my, my plate. And, um, you know, in Florida, if, if you have 100% disability, you, you get a license plate that says disabled veteran. You get tax benefits. You get, a you know, your driver's license and registration don't cost anything. Good parking spot? What's that? Good parking spot? No, I don't. I don't actually don't use the parking spot. I I always park far away because I can walk fine. So I have somebody who has a hard time walking take the you know the handicapped spot. But I do have the the plate. But anyway, so I'm walking with some friends and um, they see my uh, they see my plate and they said, "Well, oh, disabled veteran. Like you know, what's your disability?" I said, "Well, I have I have two sets. They're different. They're two sets of disabilities." And I said, "Well, you know, what are they?" I said, well, I have one complete set that's all like physical bodily things like my ears, my eyes, my neck, my shoulders, my back, my uh, hips, my knees, my feet, you know, and on and on. That is a is a 100% disability. My lungs, my sleep apnea, you know, asthma. And uh, they said, oh, okay. Well, you said you have two. What, what's the other one? I said, oh, it's a brain thing. And they said, well, what's your brain thing? I said, well, I have bipolar disorder. 
And they said, well, wow, that's awesome. They said, well, you know, I have a brain thing too. And, you know, my wife has a brain thing. My kid has a brain thing. And so what I, what I discovered is in telling people openly and honestly that I have bipolar disorder with no embarrassment, no stigma, no cover-up, no, no sugarcoating, 100% of the people I've told either have a mental illness affliction or they're affected by it by virtue of their spouse, their family, their friend, or a colleague. So it's 100% of the global population are either afflicted or affected. I would challenge anybody to find any human being on the planet who isn't either afflicted or affected. And when you tell people, and then you're open about it, and some of them are like, oh, wow, okay, hey, that's cool. Well, wow, that's that's really good. I'm glad you told me. Um, you don't seem like you're bipolar. Uh, you know, you seem so fit and normal. There's nothing wrong with you. And, uh, you know, some people react that way, which is cool. Others want to do a deep dive into it. Like, tell me about it. Like, what happened? What was it like? How are you doing now? What's your life like? What are you going to do with yourself? Blah, blah, blah. So I started verbally talking to people about this stuff over a period of weeks and months and over a year. And then many of them want to tell me their story with depression or suicide or something, or, you know, some people have, you know, brain cancer and the tumor affects their brain so that it basically replicates a mental illness and they had surgery. So there's all these different stories like that. And then people, out of that, then people started asking me, hey, would you speak at a Rotary Club? I said, yeah, sure. I would speak at one again tomorrow. How about our church group? How about in a retreat? How about this group, a veterans group? And so I started speaking more and more mm-hmm. openly about it, and I started writing about it. I wrote a manuscript for my book, mm-hmm. and then I started, you read the first article I wrote, and I've written a half a dozen more since then that are all published. They're on my website. And so now it's like I've, I've had... So many people come to me as a result of reading an online virtual network of mental wellness warriors that we meet at least once a month. We talk about stuff. We work on all different aspects of um, mental health advocacy. And some of my best friends in the world, I've never physically met, but I know them through phone, Zoom, online. So that's kind of the story on communicating it. Uh, and, and the website is generalgregmartin.com. It's general spelled all the way out in Greg with two G's at the end, G-R-E-G-G, martin.com. Um, exactly. What is the difference, if there is any, between the way we discuss mental health holistically as a country and the way the military deals with mental health? I think in some ways the military is out in front of the general civilian population and in some ways we're behind and i'll just explain that to you i think there are big swaths of the general population that are pretty knowledgeable about mental illness they understand it's not the person's fault they understand that's a that it's a physiological thing that goes on in the brain and so therefore there should be no stigma. It shouldn't exist. And that the person should get help, make connections, generate hope, and get on with recovery. I think there's a lot of civilians. I don't know what percent, but I'm going to say probably a quarter, maybe even a third, have that view. 
And then I would, I would argue that you probably have maybe an equal amount on the other end of the spectrum in the civilian community who think it's all a bunch of garbage, that there's no such thing as mental illness, that it's all made up in somebody's mind, that it's weakness, lack of character, lack of willpower, a bunch of baloney, um, and that it should be, you should be ashamed of it and embarrassed and, and keep it quiet and hidden. So I'd say in the civilian world, you kind of have these poles. And I'd say the military is more in the middle of that spectrum. So within the military, I think you have a lot of people and it's getting better all the time. I think you have a lot of people in the military, you know, who see it for what it is and that it shouldn't be stigmatized and it shouldn't be seen as a sign of weakness. But also in the military, you got a whole bunch of people who see it in a bad light, that it is a stigma, that they look down on it and they, you know, are uh, uh, they um they're, they prohibit and block and prevent soldiers, service members from getting the help they need because they think it's wimpy and soft and weak. So I think the military is kind of in the middle, but I do really applaud the military. If, if I look back 20 years ago, pre 9-11, we've come light years. Yes. I mean, we've come so, so far and it's come from both ends. I mean, I think I think the senior leaders have done a really good job. Like I'll never forget General Corelli, who was the vice chief of staff of the army, like around 2010 to 2012. I mean, he was just so passionate and smart and knowledgeable. And that's what he devoted himself to was the anti-suicide and mental health. And, you know, then you had generals coming out and saying they had mental, um, you know, PTSD or whatever. Um, So I think we've come a long way. I think the awareness and the training is better but I think as my own experience alludes to, we got a long way to go. Um, you know, the, I've gotten hundreds of responses to my articles and there are a lot, a lot of uh, younger service members who have suffered terribly in these wars, who have real trauma and they were stigmatized. They didn't get the medical help. Um, they were not properly dealt with. A lot of them are, um, they, they get bad conduct, bad paper discharges from the military as opposed to medical um, discharges. Um, so they're dealt with in a disciplinary fashion as opposed to a medical fashion when really they were suffering from mania or depression. So they leave the military without the, the requisite paperwork to have any kind of a transition to the VA their marriage goes up in flames. They get alcohol. They become alcoholics. Some of them drug addicts. I mean, I've had young officers who have who um, have gotten addicted to heroin and are homeless and suicidal. And th- I mean, so these younger men and women are being mishandled by the military because they've written me and you know, emails and phone calls and stuff like that. So I would just say we're getting better, but we have a long way to go. I wrote an article where I explain why people don't um, confront those with mental illnesses, what the reasons are. And we talk about a bunch of that. And then, you know, what the military can do better, what, what recommendations and conclusions we can have to get better. And that'll be coming out in an article pretty soon. And, there, you know, it's all stuff that you've probably thought of. There's no rocket science, but we just need to get after it. Is there anything that 
Major General Greg Martin, at the very end of his career, could have said to Lieutenant Greg Martin, Major Greg Martin, even Colonel Greg Martin, that would have made a difference in retrospect? Do you think if you could go back and tell yourself something that might have been able to solve this problem sooner, diagnose it sooner, make you more aware of it, was there anything that you would think you would have believed? Yes. Um, And I write about it in my book. Uh, They were some very wise words from my mother, of all people. He told me this from the time I was at West Point, you know, about 20, all the way through NDU. She said, Greg, you're not Superman. You have to get more sleep. You're not getting enough sleep. That's really bad for your health and your brain. You need to drink less. You're drinking way too much. It's really bad for you. And when you drink too much, you do stupid things. And then finally, she said, the army is not your life. The army is not everything. You treat the army like it's everything. The army's going to stop someday for you. Someday, you're, you're either going to retire, you're going to die, or the army's going to kick you out. And they're not going to give a rat's ass about you. Because they're going to get some other guy, and they're going to go in there, and they're going to do the job. And you're going to soon be forgotten. And you, you need to have a life of balance that's healthy. You're out of balance. And so she started telling me that when I was you know, a teenager. If I had done that and listened to her and taken it to heart, I could have been a much healthier, more balanced person from my teenage years all the way through my army career, all the way to two-star general. Um, I could have, you know, I could have tamed, you said, work hard, play hard. That was actually our unit motto when I was a lieutenant. And we did. I mean, we, we worked our asses off. We trained hard, Cold War mission. And then we drank, we partied, we had a blast. And it was wonderful, except it was very unhealthy. And the culture of the army... I think fostered my hyperthymia, my near mania. It, it fostered it. It rewarded it. It liked it. It advanced me. But if I had to take my mother's advice, sleep more, drink less, have better balance, my bipolar may never have kicked in. Wow. So that, that was the next question I was going to ask you. Do you think it would have delayed you getting to where you are? Was bipolar inevitable to you? So you think there might have been something that could have prevented it? Yes, it's not inevitable. Um, So far, science has not discovered a bipolar gene. Right. But they know there is one in there somewhere in the DNA. They just haven't found it yet. And so what they call it, what scientists say, is that people who have bipolar or come down with it had, from the time they were born, a genetic predisposition for bipolar. So it's, it's in there. It's in your brain, it's dormant, it's it's asleep, and it takes a some sort of high-stress event. And that could be any number of things. Right, a death, me, a divorce, whatever. It could be anything. For me, the, uh, the, the Army did a, a medical review board, and they said, prior to Iraq, you were not bipolar. From Iraq on, you were. So it was the Iraq war that triggered it. They, the, then the VA looks at those that study 
And the VA said, yep, we agree. We put our stamp on it. So according to the medical authorities, that was the trigger. But if it hadn't happened, I might never have come down with bipolar. And the thing that I remember I described how I start getting more and more near manic all the way up through. I was a battalion commander. I started getting crazier and crazier. The hyperthymia brought me closer and closer and closer to actual mania and actual bipolar. And so if I had moderated my behavior in, in years and decades prior, I may, may never have been that close and may never have hit. The other thing that's an interesting um, thing is um, I've been working really close with a, you know, a really acclaimed psychiatrist and it's worth reading his book. You would love it. It's called um, A First Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. It's written by a psychiatrist who teaches at Harvard and Tufts Medical Schools. His name is Nasir Gami, N-A-S-S-I-R-G-H-A-E-M-I. And he actually believes that people with hyperthymia like me that you could probably intervene at an early stage with very modest amounts of lithium and keep prevent bipolar from ever coming. He's not sure in order to make a scientific declaration, a medical declaration like that, you have to do experiments and oh, yeah. you know, years of research. And they're not even close to doing something like that yet because the downsides of lithium really don't warrant doing the experiment but he believes that there's a pretty good chance because lithium such an effective mood stabilizer it could potentially not only delay onset but maybe even prevent bipolar because as you mentioned mental health and mental illness comes in so many forms what's a message that you want people to know given everything you've been through and what you've learned what's the message you want people to know about their own mental health you're very fragile you're not superman uh, the brain is very, very complex. Uh, at least one in five, some say one in four people in America and on the planet have some type of mental illness. That's what scientists say. So let's say it's one in four. That's a pretty high probability. 25% have some form of mental illness. So there's a fairly good chance that you do have something. Um, then if you don't have a mental illness, there are other mental health factors which can also cause severe problems. For example, traumatic brain injury. It's not a mental illness, but it's a significant brain factor. PTSD, not a mental illness. Uh, survivor's guilt, not a mental illness. Moral injury, not a mental illness. But any one of those factors can go to work inside your brain and cause mental illness type effects that can then contribute to suicide. So all of us are at greater risk than we think. I would say, be mindful yourself, get educated, take an hour and look online and, and see what are you know, just Google, what are the symptoms of the major mental health disorders? Take one hour and read that stuff. And then be aware of yourself and then keep an eye on your family members, your friends, your colleagues. So if you're in the military, for sure, you know, your members of squad, platoon, company, you know, your battle buddy, 
your peer-to-peer support, whatever you want to call them. Keep an eye on each other. And then be honest and say, if you think you see something, say something. Say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some things in your behavior that concern me, and here's what they are. And then go get help. Go get mental help. If in doubt, get help. Um, I've been told that the military now, you can go in and get a mental health screening, like from a social worker or a therapist that doesn't go in your records, it doesn't send up red star clusters um, that are going to get you, you know, on the wrong side of security clearances and that kind of thing. So go get checked out. Better safe than sorry. And then if you do have, you're diagnosed with a mental health disorder of some kind, whatever it is, embrace it. Don't resist it. Don't deny it. Say, okay, I have it. And, you know, it's not my fault. Um, I'm not ashamed of it. If I hurt my knee or my back or I had cancer or a broken leg, I wouldn't be ashamed of that. I would go get medical help and I would get diagnosed, treated and recover so I could get on with my life. So do that and then make connections. Make connections with other people. Like I've made now dozens and dozens of connections with people who are my huge source of inspiration, both in Cocoa Beach, like in the gym, from church, um, all these people that have connected with me online, they've reached out to me. I've got some of my best friends are now people I've met online from my articles. So you make connections, that builds hope. You, you generate knowledge and experience and lessons learned. And then you can help yourself, help other people, help your, you know, your family. Like I've got people in my family who have bipolar and other mental illnesses, and now I'm able to really help them a lot because I couldn't before because I didn't, I couldn't empathize because I hadn't gone through it and I didn't have the knowledge that I have now. So those are some big things. Um, embrace it, go get medical help, um, get diagnosed, get treated, make connections, build hope. Are you more, I don't want to use the word proud, but are you more, do you get more satisfaction out of what you've overcome post-military career than what you did in your military career? That is a great question. Yes, I do. I love the military. I love being a leader. Um, I mean, I go to rush every day being a leader in the Army, especially around you know, the lower enlisted soldiers around the non-commissioned officers, the junior officers, where, you know, you're in a tip of the spear unit that was doing big, important things, whether it's the Cold War or Iraq or whatever, um, training people at Fort Leonard Wood. Um, I, I, I loved it. I loved everything about it. And um, but this new mission, which kind of came on me a couple of years ago, this is like a mission kind of straight from God. And I don't want to sound manic here, but it's really a God thing. I mean, you know, God either caused or allowed me to go through this whole bipolar nightmare and then pulled me out of it. I mean, the recovery was amazing, though, how well I've recovered and how healthy and happy I am now and how successful. Um, and the opportunity to just do what I love to do using my painful experience to share my bipolar story to just help stop the stigma, to chip away at it, to knock holes in the illogical nature of it, the ignorance of it, the 
cruelness of the stigma to be able to pound away on that with a, you know, with, with a sledgehammer. I do it every single day. And um, to be able to do that and know that I am helping to save marriages, families, careers, lives, you know, preventing suicides, homelessness, drug addiction, alcoholism, you know, to know that I'm doing that is like the most rewarding thing I've ever had. And a number of people have told me, they said, you know, what you're doing now is way bigger and more important than what you did in the army, even as a, you know, company commander and a battalion commander, and you know, two-star general, this is bigger. And I, I agree with them. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you're all of a sudden you, in certain ways, uh, you now are the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of a completely different organization, right? A completely different one that has has a larger purpose and a bigger impact and a wider swath of impact uh, than you could have possibly ever had uh, on a force, you know, of, of a million people in uniform. Uh, and, so, you know, to that end, and it's much longer lasting too, right? Because uh, as your mom reminded you, at some point in time, you'll take the uniform off and you'll do something different. But the tools that you're putting in people's tool bag now will serve them for the rest of their lives more so than you know, in combat or anywhere else. Thank you. Um, that's really uh, encouraging words. I really appreciate it. I think you're right. Um, the swath is huge. I mean, I, I've been working with individuals, um, giving them the message. And I'm not a medical person by any means. I don't you know, try to diagnose or treat anybody. But with individuals, you know, mostly veterans, some active serving military, um, a lot of work with nonprofits, which is really rewarding. There's some great nonprofits out there. And then most recently, it's really interesting, have been um, private companies. Uh, there's some really high-speed technology stuff going on in the mental health space. Um, in particular, there's a couple of companies that have brought me in to, to work with them. And they, they basically are using artificial intelligence and avatars to essentially diagnose and mental illness. And what they found is that it's very efficient. It's a huge cost saver. And a lot of pe people who are patients, they actually prefer talking to an avatar, which is basically a robot. And um, so I've been brought in. They, they really like, you know, my message. They've watched my talks. They've read my articles. And so they want a veteran who has gone through this to come in and partner with them. So that's been a really cool thing because I've, you know, I was with the army my whole career. <laughs> and, uh, and so now getting to work with some, you know, really smart businessmen is a whole new experience. And I love that they're focusing on veterans. Well, again, the website is uh, generalgregmartin.com. Again, the word general, G-R-E-G-G, -G, martin.com is where you guys can go to check out everything that, uh, that General Martin is working with now. Uh, and, of course, you can read all the other articles and other media links that he has on there. But, uh, again, just an, an incredible story from 36 years in uniform to a lifetime of service out of it uh, and the impact that you'll continue to have going forward. I uh, wish you nothing but continued health continued mental health success uh and and plenty of things going forward for you sir it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and certainly understanding your story and you tell still 
with the same sort of mania that you I would expect, but it's it's a passion uh, for where you are and where you want to be and how you want to help others get there. And I think that's certainly commendable. Well, thank you very much. You have a great show. I totally, thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, as my wife always ribs me, she said, yeah, Greg loves to talk, especially about his favorite subject, himself. <laughs> I, I, I get that a lot too, sir. <laughs> I totally can understand. We thank you for being part of the whole thing. But uh, Major General Greg Martin, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You're welcome. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.